you guys have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Ruth. We are going to start a fresh book today. Probably only do it for a um, couple weeks. Ruth is a short book. It won't take us much. thought about trying to do the whole thing tonight, but uh, don't think that'll happen. Some of you may have picked up on the fact that uh, we skipped a couple chapters in Judges. <laughs> we finished uh, the story of Samson, and uh, we, we uh, so if you'd like to read them, there's, there's some story, uh, storied tales there in the end of Judges. And basically, you know, if you look at, if you're in Ruth, if you go back to Judges, the very last verse of Judges is a verse as Christians you should be familiar with, right? In verse 25 of, of the last, of Judges 21, you guys there? It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in what? In his own eyes. And, and so, so basically that was the condition of Israel in these days. That verse sums up what we've been studying for the last five, six weeks in Judges, that, that everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Solomon tells us in the Proverbs that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. The end thereof is destruction. And so it's God's will that we want in our lives. And the nation of Israel um, did what was right in his own eyes, and they were in a really bad place in this time in their history. And, um, and then that brings us to Ruth. Um, chapter one, verse one, it says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled the land, that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This is happening in the days of the judges. So whether, you know, maybe this is somewhere in the middle of the book of Judges that this thing is happening, but it just tells us that in the days of the judges, we get this book of Ruth. Now, if we had read or went through the last couple chapters of Judges, you know, we, we find these pretty, pretty bad things happening, stories happening, rape and terrible death and things happening in the end there that, you know, where the depravity of man and, you know, one of the concepts we've talked about, um, you know, as people, it's a biblical concept. You know, the Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked above all things who can know it. And we look at, we look at the, 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 what man is a, a um, capable of doing, you know, we see murder and death and we see men who hurt children. And we, from the outside, we look and we say, you know, and I'll just make this up, but this is something I've probably read or out there you can imagine, but a, a man who, who takes a four five, six year old girl and rapes her and dismembers her and hides her body. And you read these kind of stories and you think how in the world could a human being be capable of such evil and, and do such a thing. You know, you look at, for my, my day, if anybody's around my age, or you remember a guy named by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer, and Jeffrey Dahmer was, most of his victims were gay, and Jeffrey Dahmer was, was gay, and, um, and then he would dismember his, his victims and keep them in his freezer and eat them, and just a sick, sick individual. But the, the, the concept or the idea is that, you know, how does that happen? That, that can happen to any of us. Any of us are capable of those types of things because your heart is desperately wicked above all things who can know it. And, and it's not a gene that these guys have that we don't have. It's a, it's a departing from, from God and the things of God and the Lord. And, and, and the farther you get away from God and the more you, you know, obviously these guys have, have gone pretty far, but they didn't start there. And so, you know, the, the wisdom is that we stay as close to God as possible and that we, we, we keep a soft heart as possible. A concept we talked about last week, always wanting a soft heart and never allowing that hot iron to sear our conscience and our heart. And, and what happens in these men's lives is that hot iron will sear, sear their hearts so many times to where they can become 
desperately wicked above all things who can know it as God describes the heart of man and that we're capable of those things. And, and you know, we, we obviously want to stay in the Lord. And we've seen in Judges and, and some of these places the depravity of man. But that to say, <laughs> we get a good story in Ruth. We get a happy story. We get a story of redemption. We get um, a story. Uh, Ruth is going to become a Gentile bride who, as you guys know, there's four women, not mentioning Mary, who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And Ruth becomes the great, great grandmother of King David in direct line of Jesus, the Messiah. And so Ruth, in essence, becomes the great, 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 I'll save you lots of more great grandmas of Jesus himself, who is a Gentile bride. And the story is a story of reconciliation, a story of redemption where um, Boaz redeems um, Naomi and Ruth and, and redeems this field to get the girl. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ and what he did to redeem you and I as his Gentile bride. And so um, it's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth of redemption and, and what Jesus does in redeeming his Gentile bride. So it starts with, it starts with, it came to pass, and I've already read it, I'll read it again. In the days that the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. Now, 13 times the Bible records famines, and every time it's um, a part of God's judgment. So, you know, one of the things that, that which I, again, I don't want to be dogmatic about, I'm not trying to sell it one way or the other, but you watch like um, Katrina, you guys remember Katrina? Um, we see different things. Did God cause those disasters? Did, you know, and again, I, I'm not saying God did, that God was using them as judgment. I'd be careful in that because obviously, you know, Christians' homes and, and believers and, and children of God were affected as well. And the, the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. But one of the things that, that always kind of not bothers me, but just makes me believe to some extent that obviously whether God used it as a judgment you know, that God didn't prevent it. God allowed it. And, and, and the thing is, when you see them in the Bible, you never see it recorded where it's just a random, natural act of mother nature. Every time it's recorded for us in the Bible, it's God's hand of either judgment or correction or he's he's directly involved in in what's going on and so when the the, the famines that are recorded for us in the Bible, there's 13 of them. Um, 13 is a number of rebellion, and there's 13 of them, and every one of them that's recorded is a direct hand to God's judgment. And so God is judging the nation of Israel with a famine, and uh, basically the the way that God would, um, the easiest way that God would create famine in the land was to hold back the rain, because all of Israel intentionally, by God's design, is dry, was dry land farming. It's not so much today, but they depended on the rain for the crops, and so if it didn't rain, they didn't eat. The crops didn't grow, and so there's a famine in the land. And it says, um, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to, went to dwell in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Epaphroditus of Bethlehem, Epaphroditus of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So you have this famine in Bethlehem. The word Bethel means house of bread. So it's coincidence that there's a famine in the house of bread. And then you have these, you know, Jewish folks that, that are there in Israel. And they, they leave the, the, the provision of God because there's a famine. And they go down to Moab. 
And, and Moab basically means armpit or toilet. God said that it was that the term is, is his armpit or his toilet. And, and where the Moabites came from, the Moabites were, were longtime enemies of Israel. And Moabite was, a, in essence, a, a pagan land. Um, you guys remember Lot? Remember the story of Lot? God literally drags Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Lot's um, wife, and he had sons who didn't believe him when Lot said there was going to be trouble. And Lot's sons stayed, son-in-laws stayed. And his two daughters and his wife, he got them out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot's wife, the Bible says that she looked back longingly upon Sodom and Gomorrah and God turned her into a pillar of salt. And so you have Lot and his two daughters who, who get out of Sodom and Gomorrah before God judges it. And these two daughters and Lot, the last thing they see is hail and brimstone coming on um, Sodom and Gomorrah, they end up hiding in a cave as they get away. Well, Lot's daughters were under the impression that, that the whole world just died and there's only three people left on planet earth. And so they come up with a plan to, um, have babies with their father. And so they get him drunk and one of the daughters goes in while he's drunk and sleeps with him and gets pregnant. And the next night they do it again. And the other daughter goes in and gets pregnant. Wonderful story, right? And uh, so these these two um, daughters of Lot have um, two babies, and they were the Moabites and the Edomites. And so the Edomites and the Moabites were from that point, you know, the descendants of the Moabites and the Edomites became eternal enemies of Israel and have always, you know, a problem. And God cursed the Moabites to 10 generations. And so really the, the point is, is that, you know, the, this, this Hebrew has no business leaving Israel and going down to Moabite land because there's a famine. And, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know, taking your family and moving to Vegas because the economy's good because you can make a lot of money. You know, I, I had a friend of mine and you guys look at me like, well, that's what's so bad about that. Don't do it. Good friend of mine, Marine, former Marine, just getting out of the Marines and he got offered a job in Vegas and uh, he's a super talented guy to this day. He works like in the Pentagon and in Virginia and he's super, super talented, super talented guy. He's got potential to make lots of money. Well, he had a buddy that was starting a startup business in Vegas and he was asking me to pray about it and it was a really good opportunity for business and for work and, but it was in Vegas and he said, what do you think? And so he's a good friend of mine who was asking my advice so I could tell him exactly what I think. And, you know, I said, I said, I don't care how much money you make, dude, I wouldn't for the life of me. And I, I believe that God calls certain people to live there. And I know there's lots of Christians there. I know there's a big Calvary Chapel there. There's lots of, you know, and so, you know, it's got to be God's call on your life. But to purposely move there, you know, I said, you know, what if your daughters grew up and became strippers or you know, it was a way I put it to him that, that you know, that, that lifestyle of Vegas has potential to eat you up. And, and, and you live there and you grow up there and you see that and you live that. I'm not, and again, I, you know, I wasn't telling my friend his daughters were going to grow up and do terrible things. But, you know, the potential that that lifestyle definitely. And that's exactly what happened to Lot, though, you guys. Like that same story is Lot's story. Lot was a good guy. He's Ab Abraham's nephew. Everything's good. He ends up, and if you read the story, you know the story of Lot. He first pitched his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah. The next time we find Lot, he's in Sodom and Gomorrah. The next time we see Lot, he's sitting in the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where the leadership of the, so he went from pitching his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah, gazing toward Sodom and Gomorrah, pitching his tents to Sodom and Gomorrah, in Sodom and Gomorrah, a leader in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the life that happened in, with his family by the time it was ready to come out, he lost his wife 
because the lifestyle of Sodom and Gomorrah ate her up and she, and she liked it. He lost his two sons. His two son-in-laws wouldn't leave with him. And so really for, um, for this guy, he's got no business going down there to um, the toilet bowl to hang out with, to be there. But he goes down and he takes, um, he takes them. And, you know, here we have it again in verse 1, just a quick note. But, you know, Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem. And so Jesus is from Bethlehem. Epaphroditus is the word, or I can't ever pronounce it right, but Epaphrata. Um, in verse 2 there, uh, from Epaphrata. So this is the connection to the tribe of Judah, that Jesus um, was from the tribe of Judah. He was um, from and be born in Bethlehem. And this brings us back to his roots. So they went down to, to Moab and no business down there. And then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. Now her two sons, Malon and Chilion, their names mean um, sickly and um, um, puny. Sickly and puny. So <laughs> I don't know if they intentionally named their sons sickly and puny or why you would do that. But, you know, maybe these guys were just unhealthy, sickly and puny. So uh, Chilion and Malon go down there and, and says, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Oprah Winfrey. Orpah. Oh, I'm dyslexic. I saw Oprah. And the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. Now, I'm not going to spend any time tonight on this, you guys. I'm just going to highlight it one more time. But again, it, it, it was not God's will for Hebrews to take pagan wives. They it just all the way through biblical history, even the New Testament, the New Testament, Jason, Jason is teaching on it tonight. Second Corinthians chapter six, do not be unequally yoked together with nonbelievers and do not forsake the gathering of the brethren, which is the, which is the um, occasion of some. So, so again, it's not God's intent that, that Christians and non-Christians get um, married, that we're not supposed to marry outside of our faith. I know some people don't like that. They think that's whatever, but it's just, it's God's all the way through human history. God has laid it out for the problems. You know, one of the things I was telling Jay tonight, he, he talked to me a little bit about the message that he was going to share tonight. And I said, you know, obviously delivered in grace, but you don't, you can't water it down. You got to tell them what God's word says. But you know, the thing for our kids is that our kids believe that, um, you know, sometimes God has rules because God is angry or because God is mean or because God is like sitting on a throne in heaven with a big white beard and he's stroking it to see who he can zap with lightning when we mess up, you know, and helping our kids understand that that the rules that God laid out, they're not arbitrary. They're not just because they're not, um, you know, the reason why God has these rules is because he's a good, good father and he loves us. And just like a good father wouldn't let a two year old play in the street. Because he's a tyrant. He doesn't want her to have any fun. She's loving it. You know, there's flowers out there. She's picking in the middle of the street. No, she's going to die if she plays in the street. Get her butt out of the street. And God's rules are laid out to protect us. And there's trouble. And, and, and just like on another note, I tell him, you know, I said, if, if, if I love to hike and fish and be outdoors every day, you know, why would I, why would I want to get together with somebody who on Saturday afternoon likes to stay in the house and watch movies and bake cookies? Like, it's great. That's a great thing if you like to watch movies and do those things. But to me, it's going to create problems, right? On Saturday when I want to go, you know, hike the, hike the Andes or something and they want to stay home and watch Netflix. Like, so finding people in relationships that we're compatible with spiritually, you know, my idea of, of spirituality is I'll go to church on Christmas and Easter. 
And, 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 and the person that I'm interested, their idea of spirituality is that they hope that God calls them to Africa to live in a hut and serve Jesus in the most remote place of the world, you know, helping little children in Africa, giving their whole life and everything they have to Jesus. So one wants to be in church on Christmas and Easter and the other wants to be a missionary in Africa. Again, those are just, just not compatible things. And so, again, that compatibility that God desires that we, we should be... Um, not be unequally yoked. And so here's another case. These guys had no business with these Moabitess women in the beginning. But the, the amazing thing is in this story, God is going to redeem one of them. Not only is he going to redeem this Gentile, he's also going to um, use her in the genealogy of his son and bring the genealogy of Jesus through this, this wife that these guys find. Now they took wives and the name of one was Orpha and the name of the other was Ruth, Ruth, Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So Sickly and Puny died. And the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So now we have Naomi and the whole experiment of leaving Israel and going down to um, Moab turns out bad. And, And in a short order of time, her husband's died. Both of her sons have died. She has two daughter-in-laws now. And then Naomi arose in verse 6 with her daughters-in-law. And that night she returned from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So um, had they, had they, would they have been better had they just trusted the Lord or even just taken God's um, good with the bad and what God was doing in Moab by just staying in, in Bethlehem? Of course, right? Because God had come back and revisited Bethlehem and blessed Bethlehem. And now they hear about the God's blessing in Bethlehem. And it says that um, in verse seven, therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way and returned to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with with the dead and with me and the Lord grant that you may find rest each one in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said to them, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back my daughters go for I am too old and to have a husband If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them until they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so I I think we can say that Naomi in this condition, this place of her life, that she's probably not real close to the Lord. She's probably not been walking with the Lord for 10 years, living in this this country, not been in the word. And, And now here we have this backslidden Christian, so to speak, who's given advice to these two girls and she's telling them to go back to their gods go back to your pagan false gods is that good advice it's not good advice it's terrible advice that naomi's giving like you think like at least she would encourage these two daughter-in-laws maybe she would you would think that she was in her right mind you would feel like well at least there's one thing good that can come out of this these girls can come back they can meet the lord they can serve the lord they can know the true god of heaven but instead of thinking that way, she's depressed. She's, she's bitter. She's going to say in a little bit that, that her name is bitter. She wants to be called bitter because she's angry at the situation and, and, and just not thinking about what's right and what's good. You know, the Bible says that 
that blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And I, and I usually give this advice to the ladies, but I think for us men as well, it's the same. But, you know, um, the example that I use is you have a best girlfriend that you grew up with, that you love. She loves you. You guys, you can tell her anything, but she's not a believer. And so that, that's not somebody that you're allowed to or supposed to get advice from. You, you can be friends with her, or you can, but when it comes to confiding, when it comes to receiving advice, it, it has to come from Christian ladies. It has to come from ladies that love you and love God. And if they don't fit that criteria, then, then again, not, not, on a, not on a level of friendship or intimacy, but on a level of um, confiding, on a level of receiving um, advice. You know, I see it all the time. A woman, um, maybe a backslidden Christian, she's divorced. She's bitter about her marriage, about her situation. And, you know, and, and, and she's giving advice to another Christian woman that she should divorce her husband. It's not biblical. It's not right. And so, so iron sharpens iron, the Bible says. What is iron? Iron is, is two Christians who love God, who love each other. And when you rub two pieces of iron together, they get sharper. And that's the concept of, of us as Christians, men and women, receiving advice from other Christians. Um, and, and if you take a Christian, which is represented as iron in the, in, the, in the proverb, and a piece of wood, which is a non-Christian, you rub the iron against the wood, what happens to the iron? What happens to the iron, folks? Are you guys all right? It gets dull, okay? And so that's, that's, again, that's not God's intent. So Naomi here is, uh, she's giving pretty bad advice, but thankfully one of them doesn't listen. It says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. So they're really having this emotional girls moment here where they're all crying and weeping and weeping again and kissing each other and hugging and talking and Naomi's feeling sorry for herself. And it says, um, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law but Ruth clung to her. So big difference here. And she looked and she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Orpah kissed her and left. And Ruth clung to her. You know, the Bible says to abide in Christ, to cling to Christ. That is your life. You want to be successful in your Christian walk? You just abide in Jesus. And I know that seems simple, but it absolutely is the recipe for good Christian living is to every day of your life. And it is the recipe that God laid out to cling to the word abide means to remain in, to be one with, to stay with, um, abide in Jesus. And that's the example that Ruth says she abides, she clings, she hangs on tight. And then Orpah, she kisses her, but then she takes off back to her foreign gods and her foreign land and and goes back to, to following those things. And then um, we have uh, one, of the, one of the most famous sayings in all the Bible coming up and, and declarations. And it says, but Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. You guys there in verse 16? For wherever you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I die, and there I will be buried, and the Lord do so me, to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. So we have these famous sayings of Ruth, that where you go, I go, and where you lodge, I lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. When Lydia and I first left to come to Utah, um, Lydia got a parting gift from Megan Wagemaker, who's, and her husband were in Yucca Valley at the time. And then after we moved here, they moved to Idaho and wage, um, you guys have met Richard Wagemaker. He's an assistant pastor, was assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel Gooding. And uh, just this last month, um, 
was offered the senior position, pastor's position to a retiring pastor in Homedale, Idaho. And so Richard and Megan just left um, this last month and are now, uh, the senior pastor that's retiring is still there and Richard and Megan are transitioning and they're, they moved there and they're taking over Calvary Chapel, Homedale. Uh, really, really good friends of Lydia and I, um, lifelong friends. And so anyways, Megan gave Lydia this two plaques. They're in our hallway, come in our house. When you go to the bathroom, look to your left. And it has this saying on it, where you go, I go, and your God will be my God. And, and then in verse 18, it says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Not, not like she was mad, like, I'm oh, fine, I ain't talking to you no more. It was more like she, um, she just stopped arguing with her about it and let her go. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. So now they're back in Israel and about a hundred miles that they, that they went. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She must've looked haggard. <laughs> the 10 years must have been rough because, you know, there was excitement, small town, right? And everybody knows Naomi and her husband and, the, and the, their story and they move out of town. And, and now Naomi comes back and there's a buzz in town and they're excited. But when they see her, she doesn't look the same. And although it's only been 10 years, without a doubt, again, you know, and I don't know what she would have looked like. But, but, you know, sometimes, whether it's the case or not, sometimes, you know, life, life is hard on folks, right? Folks wear their lives on their face and, you know, you see somebody who's, you know, lived a pretty good life and, you know, they're, they're 62 and they look like they're 42 or 52. And you see somebody who's 42 that's lived a rough life and they look like they're 62, you know, and your, your, your countenance tells a lot about, about you. And so no, no doubt, maybe these years that to Naomi that weren't very good. And, you know, and then I think again, when we read these things in the Bible, I don't think that we, um, you know, I'm judging Naomi a little bit for her condition, really her backslidden condition. But at the same time, there should be a, a, a understanding, a little bit of empathy that, you know, she lost her husband. And that's one of the most difficult things in life to walk through is to lose your spouse. And I think probably the thing that's more difficult than losing your spouse is probably losing, your, losing a child. And, you know, having, having never walked through that, um, you know, but walked with people that had to walk through that and knowing that, you know, probably one of the most difficult trials that, that we face in this life would be losing a child. And she lost two children. She lost a husband. So she's a little grumpy. She's a little bitter. She's a little given bad advice. And, you know, so again, there's a little bit of grace for her situation of just where she is, you know, that, that she's, she's lost two kids. And so, um, it says, they said, is this Naomi in verse 19 and the verse 20? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi for my name is Mara for the Lord almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So the word Mara literally means bitter. Um, so she, she's bitter. She's bitter. She's bitter at what? We talked about on Sunday in the Lord's prayer, God says that, that, you know, the concept, I don't know how many of you guys are here on Sunday, but we talked about this concept on Sunday that you, you cannot, or you do not have the right as Christians to not forgive, that, that you have to forgive, that you're, you're called to forgive, whether you feel like it or whether you don't. And the reason that, that we, we have to forgive is because that it's, it's a bitterness is a poison that affects you. 
And maybe you're mad at a boss. Maybe you're mad at a situation. Maybe you're mad at somebody who, who hurt you as a child. Maybe you're mad at a former spice spouse. Maybe you're mad at someone who's, who's harmed one of your family members or hurt one of your family members. And, and that bitterness that you have, that anger that you, you keep, you, um, you know, that person sleeps like a baby at night. It never touches them. That angerness and bitterness that you've created over this situation, it affects you. And it, it, it actually literally physically, um, scientifically affects your health. And you're not healthy because of it. And then the wrath that, that you have because of that bitterness gets put out on the people that are closest to you, that love you the most, your spouse, your children, the people that you're around every day. And so God says you have to forgive. That's, that's a recipe for his children. Now, again, we, you know, forgiving and, and, and letting the dog bite you twice, that's two different things. That's not what God's talking about. And if somebody did something against you that's criminal, you can go to court as they're being prosecuted and going to jail for the rest of their life and forgive them. It's not that, that the punishment goes away or that, you know, they're still going to go to jail. They're still rightfully wrong and all those things. But, you know, and you're not allowing them into your family, but you're, you're forgiving them in your heart. You're forgiving what literally, genuinely forgiving them. Because, again, that, that's just not, God doesn't want that for his children. So it's, it's an area that we have to deal with. And right now, even as I talk about this, if there's anybody in here and you, you have bitterness towards somebody, towards something, you know, the, the bottom line is this, that ultimately... As Lydia said in, in, in the beginning of this question was, who are you bitter at? God. On the end of the day, you may be mad at X, Y, Z, but ultimately in the, in the heart of the matter, you're angry with the Lord for, for this situation, for how it's affected you. How it's, and, and that's something that, that, that you have to let go. You have to forgive. And again, you know, people say, I don't feel like forgiving or I don't have the emotion. I don't have the. And again, it's, it's, it's a decision. It's not an emotion. And once you make the decision, maybe God will, in his grace, allow some emotion and allow the emotion to maybe follow. But it'll never come first. It's first a decision that you make, that you understand for your health, for the health of your family, for what's right, for what's biblical, for your own well-being, that you, you forgive these things. Well, she's bitter, and it's affecting her life, and so she's, she's calling herself bitter. Um, she doesn't turn out to be bitter. She gets, she gets better here, Naomi does. Um, and it says... In verse 21, I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Did God afflict her? Did God afflict her? I mean, her, her husband died. Her kids died. Her opinion was that God afflicted her. But, but again, I, I don't think that God afflicted her in the way that she thinks God afflicted her. And I don't think that God afflicts us in the way that God um, afflicts us. You know, and we did walk through this. Lydia's mom, you know, a beat, was married to her dad for 31 years. She served the Lord faithfully as a pastor's wife. She was an amazing Bible teacher. She loved women. She loved ministry. She, she gave her life to serve and help other people. And, you know, life wasn't about making money or about her own pleasure. She was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week for her entire life and available for people as a, as a pastor and a pastor's wife are. And, um, and, and she gets pancreatic cancer and dies. And, and through the process, there is a decision, you know, and, and it's a very difficult decision. And, you know, Lydia walked through it with grace and went through moments and times and difficulties, but ultimately um, didn't become bitter at God, didn't think that God afflicted her, that God, you know, was punishing her. And, you know, and that one day, 
It's going to make sense, but in the meantime, we're going to continue to serve the Lord, continue to walk with the Lord, continue to trust that God has our best interests at hand. And so here again, Naomi has this, this bad attitude and, you know, bad attitude's like a flat tire, right? You're not going anywhere until you change it. <laughs> so she got to get rid of it. And Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab and now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So five minutes to do chapter two. All right. So it says there, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was, everybody say Boaz. So Ruth, the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging. She happened to come. You guys catch that in verse three? Just by coincidence, right? To Boaz, who, who was the family of Elimelech. Now, again, in, because I had just have a few minutes here in chapter 2, we won't unpack this. Maybe next week we'll get into it a little bit. But um, from the, the law of Moses, from the Old Testament, recorded in Numbers, Deuteronomy, is the law of um, the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer. It was a law in Israel that um, this land, now Naomi and her family, her husband owned a piece of land, they owned property. And the way that, that the Israeli, the, the, the law of Moses worked was it prevented capitalism. It prevented people that were good and, and, and crafty or whatever to um, monopolize lots of land in Israel and make deals and, you know, and then end up like we are today. Not, not maybe so that it's a bad thing because if you redistributed all the wealth today in 10 years, it'd go right back to where it was with the same principle. But God prevented that. He prevented Walmart. He prevented big conglomerations of being able to capitalize. And so every seven years, the, the land would go back and then every 49 years was, was a, a whole year of Jubilee where, again, all the debts were wiped out. If your family owned a piece of land that you inherited, as the, the inheritance went to the 12 tribes, it got returned to you. There was, there was things. And if you, you, you had a piece of property that was lost, your next of kin and your family could redeem it back to you. It was called a kinsman redeemer. And so um, Naomi has uh, two relatives that are left in Israel that are in this position of being the kinsman redeemer who have the ability to redeem this property buy this property back on her behalf and redeem it back to um to her and so um and then again so ruth goes out and she's gleaning in the field now i gotta highlight this but it's god's welfare system so um, in the Old Testament, basically the, the law of Moses said that when you went through and you, you harvested a field, you couldn't go back through a second time and harvest it. That the poor and the needy could come in behind you and they could, whatever was left, whatever the, 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 you missed as you went through the field the first time, that was the welfare program. Now, the nice thing about God's welfare program was the people who needed the welfare had to do what? They had to work. They still had to go to work. They still had to go up and collect it and work. And, you know, and, and the Bible says, and listen, not Old Testament. In the New Testament. This is New Testament. This is Jesus. This is today. No, nobody can say, oh, well, that was Old Testament stuff. You know, uh, again, not trying to get too political today. I'll be careful. But really, the, the worst thing that happened to our country was our welfare system. It was one of the worst absolute things we've ever done for our country. It destroyed the family. It destroyed so many um, infrastructure of the United States was this welfare program that we, we still live under today. Ca ca 
catastrophic the effects on our country. I really believe that, that it's really at the core of a lot of the problems that we have today with, with the father not being in the home and on and on and on and on being careful of, you know, but, um, but God's welfare program, it was different. And the Bible says in the new Testament that if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. So, so God is not crying a bleeding heart for somebody who, who is able and capable of going to work, but will not work. And God says, if you will not work, nobody's responsible to feed you. The church isn't responsible to feed you. God's not responsible to feed you. That God's welfare program is that you, 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 if you're able to work, you can work for it. And, and, and so, listen, it's completely different if a man cannot work. Then, then, then that's a completely different deal. What we're dealing with is people who will not work. So again, not, not so much here at Twilla Springs, but at Joshua Springs where I came from, I, I dealt with the benevolence program and we would have people that would come in and ask the church for money all the time. And then what happened is we, we had some different things. Sometimes we would give them, we, we, we didn't like to give them cash, but we would have Stater Brothers, which was our grocery store, Macy's, whatever here, Ralph's, gift certificates for groceries. So we'd give them sometimes. I had the ability if, if I wanted to, to give them 40, 60, 100 bucks in grocery gift cards. But what was happening was, you know, I would give somebody $40 and I would record it, whatever. But then they would come back a week later and they would catch one of the other pastors and he would give them 40 bucks. And then, and there's eight pastors on staff and they'd catch one of the other guys and he'd give them 40 bucks or something. And so they said, we need to streamline it. So everybody has to just come to one pastor so he can keep a handle on what's going on. And that they chose me to do that. So for a lot of years, I, I handled all the benevolence and people would come to me and, um, my favorite was when I would tell somebody no, and then they would cuss me out when it was over. Oh, I'd love it. I was like, oh, I feel good now. Like, I don't feel bad. You know, like your heart was where it was. And so when they started dropping F-bombs and cussing me out after I had to tell them we, we weren't going to be helping them today, it was, it was always a relief that I didn't feel bad. But, but one of the things that we would do is when an able-bodied male um, came in and, and, and asked for some help, we would offer him work. Um, because the New Testament says, if a man will not work, neither will he eat. So I'd say, you'll be here tomorrow at 8 o'clock, and I got a full day of work for you. You can work eight hours. I said, I can't. I'm not hiring you. And I said, you know, semantics-wise, I'm going to give you a donation at the end of the day, and you're going to volunteer. This is the way it's going to work. But if, if you're willing to do that, then uh, we'll help you out. And every once in a while, they would show up the next day at 8 a.m. But oftentimes, I'd never see them again. And so... That was a good way to deal with it too, was just to, but here God's system. So Naomi is there. That has nothing to do with Ruth and Boaz. It really doesn't, but, but it was a good way to vent on the, no. So then it says in verse four, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and the reapers, the Lord's Lord. Now Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his servant, who is in charge of the reapers? Who's, Whose young woman is this? I wonder how he said that. Whose young woman is that? <laughs> so the servants who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. So again, the town, little town, they know the gossip. They know that Naomi's home. They know that Naomi brought this, this young Moabitess woman back to Israel with them. And they're like, it's that young Moabitess woman that came back with Naomi. And she said, 
Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she has though she rested a little in the house. Basically, she's worked her butt off. She she came early in the morning. She's worked till night. She took one little break while she went in the house and, and, and cooled off for a minute. But she has not stopped working all day. She's worked really hard. And then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen to my listen, daughter. Okay, you will listen, my daughter. You will you will not my daughter, will you not do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my young. What is she? What does he tell her? Verse eight, he tells him to stay next to his who young women and highlight that. So Ruth is supposed to stay next to the young women. He says, don't go into the, uh, the nether fields with the other owners. He said, you stay here. We're going to take care of you and stay next to my young women not the young men, the young women, and let your eyes be on the field, which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have already drawn. So she fell on her face and bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people where you did not know before. And the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. So basically he tells her, you know, I'm paying it forward and you did a good deed for Naomi and I've heard about you. You're a hard worker. You're a good girl. And so we're going to take care of you. And then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Because she was a Gentile. And Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So basically Boaz is giving her special treatment. Okay. So Boaz is having the guys, you know, take a little extra good care of her. And so you say, well, that's not fair. What about the other people that were gleaning? Well, life's not fair. Your parents ever tell you that? Right. And it's true. You know, God has a different call and a different plan, but God, God, God blesses certain people a certain way. And, you know, God takes good care of us all, but life's not always fair. And so she's going to get some special treatment here. And that's just the way it is. And then she took it up in verse 18, 17. So she gleaned the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. And then she took it up and went into the city of her mother-in-law, saw what she had gleaned. So she brought it out and gave it to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And when her mother-in-law said to her, what, where have you gleaned today and where did you work? Blessed be those, the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name and whom I worked with today was Boaz. And Naomi's jaw hit the floor and said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relative of ours, one of our close relatives. And so Naomi's excited and um, rightfully so. I think she's starting to see 
um, God's hand in all this, which is kind of cool. She's first time experiencing some of God's blessing and that this was not just an accident. I'm sure there's lots of places where Ruth could have ended up. And the fact that she ended up in a place of a kinsman redeemer and somebody that had the right to restore to uh, Naomi and Ruth their, 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 their property and and so Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, shall stay close by my young. Verse 21. What did, it, what did Ruth say? What did, what did Boaz tell her? So why did she get it twisted? Who knows? Maybe at this point she wasn't in the story. She was thinking about the young man and not the old fart who owned the place. I mean, the kids worked with their shirts off and she's like, yeah, he told me to stay next to the boys over there and hang out and cl- you know, like, I don't know if she's trying to twist it up or what, but she knows what he told her and stay by the young women and stay away from the men. But Ruth says, oh, no, I'm supposed to go and hang out with the boys, the teenage boys. And she and, and Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young what? Women. <laughs> women. So this is not just, you know, this is a conversation where it's obvious what they're talking about. And Naomi is telling her, no, that's not a good idea. You stay away from those boys and you you do what Boaz told you and you stay next to the young women and stay away from the boys and the trouble that goes with that. And that people do not meet you in any other field. And basically meet or means would be take advantage of her, rape her. You know, if she ends up in another field, in some stranger's field, in another place, and and something bad might happen to her, harm might come to her. But the advice, finally, Naomi now has given some really good, solid advice. Just hang out with the young ladies, stay with Boaz, and God there will take care of you and, and you'll be safe. So she stayed close by the young women. So Ruth followed the advice of Boaz. To glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Amen? All right. Sorry I had to rush through that. We'll uh, pick that up three and four next week. Actually, not next week. Prophecy update next week. Pray for Brian and I as we're in Philly, and uh, we'll see you back here for three and four the week after. All right? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for this story of Ruth and Boaz. And Lord, we thank you that the story of the kinsman redeemer is a picture of Jesus, that Jesus is going to buy the field to, to win the bride. And um, Lord, that, that, that Jesus has paid a price to, to buy us and to win us back unto God. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you for um, the, the, the faithfulness of Ruth, that she made a decision that where you go, I'll go and Uh, Your people will be my people and your God, most importantly, will be my God. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, again, that that in your grace and in your mercy, that you took this Gentile bride and um, and and you made her a a grandmother to Jesus and in the line of Jesus and that her great grandson would be King David and and Solomon would come through that line, Lord. And uh, we thank you again for for Jesus, for your redeeming power that's illustrated for us here in the book of Ruth in Jesus name. Amen.